Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Welcome to the Drill Down. We've got business stories behind stocks on the move. I'm Corey Johnson with episode number 207. Well, just ahead, Americans struggling to make car payments, and maybe that's not good news for those trying to sell cars. In Abercrombie and Fitch, in the midst of a giant turnaround, we're going to talk about how they're successfully managing inventory and chase. And is there a new Grand Theft Auto in the making? Take Two Interactive CEO Strauss Zelnick joins us to answer that tricky question. But first, it's sponsor time. The Drill Down is brought to you by ERA. Never miss another critical event or insight ever with ERA. Customize your company watch lists and track key events, mentions, filings, and more, all within an easy-to-use, customizable interface. That's ERA, A-I-E-R-A dot com. And you can listen to The Drill Down on any of your favorite podcast platforms, not least iTunes or Spotify or Google Play or Stitcher, iHeart or TuneIn. But hit the subscribe button, follow us, click that little check mark to make sure you catch every show. All right, I'm Corey Johnson. Welcome to The Drill Down. We're going to talk about the business stories behind some stocks that are on the move, moving a lot, in fact, in some of these cases, Isaac, but we want to understand why the businesses tell us those questions. Isaac Webster, our executive producer, joins us from Los Angeles. Isaac, Hey, Thank Corey. You. Good to see you today. Hear your voice as well. Uh, Corey, well that we've got uh, Strauss uh, Zelnick on the show today. Someone we've we've talked to over the years. Yes, yes. One of the friends of the show. Corey, what stocks are you drilling down on today? Let's start with analog devices. Analog devices trades under ADI and shares have dropped steeply the past month, shedding over 7%. But they're still higher by 7% if you're looking at a 12-month chart of ADI. What's going on with analog giant devices? Company. Yeah. Yeah, giant uh, chip maker, a $96 billion market cap based in Massachusetts. Um, and uh, well, first of all, let's, let's talk about what analog devices makes. Analog chips. How are those different than the, the digital chips made by companies like Intel and NVIDIA and, and, and others? The analog chips are basically dumber. They are, they are meant, uh, they are purpose-driven for little things like uh, automotive cars, industrial washing machines, um, uh, some communications devices, but the dumber pieces of the logic inside these communications devices. They reported a quarter, uh, their first quarter uh, ending in March, of uh, $3.3 billion in sales. That's up 10%. Earnings were up even more, 18%. Um, but the guidance was bad, and that's why, as you mentioned, the stock was down uh, in reporting this. They said that uh, while some of their sectors are doing well, automotive is doing well, but not in China. Interestingly, the Chinese electric car market looks like it might be the uh, production might be slowing down. That's been a big growth driver for this company and for lots of cars, uh, lots of companies in the automotive business. Um, uh, and it's and what they said on the call, and I'm not going to play that part of the call for you, but what they said in the conference call was they really think it is about a slowdown, not about them losing share. We've heard other companies suggest uh, that in China they are losing, that American-owned companies are losing share uh, in supplying to 
Chinese manufacturers of whatever. But uh, the analog device guys say, no, this is this is actually a slowdown in the production or a slowdown in the growth of the, the electric car market in particular in China. But I thought it was really interesting here were some comments from the CEO, Vincent Roche, who's been uh, in the chip business for nearly 40 years, uh, talking about what's going on with Moore's Law. Uh, Isaac, you know Moore's Law? I do, I, I, I do know Moore's Law. I was actually talking to our kids about Moore's Law just over the weekend. Were you really? <laughs> yeah. Your little kids. Yeah, we were just talking about the future, like, like the future is going to look for, like for them and how technology's advanced so much just in their small and lifetimes. They said, Daddy, is 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 it true that the speed of the chip will uh, increase? Uh, the performance <laughs> of the chip will increase uh, by 100 percent every 18 to 24 months, but the price of the chip will be cut in half in the same time frame. No, what they what said, said, they waited for me to stop talking, and then they said, "So, um, can we be done with dinner now?" You know, yeah, yeah, mine, mine, mine say the same thing. <laughs> um, uh, yes, or, or actually, stop talking is that I have the first part of that, usually what my teenagers give me. Well, Moore's Law is indeed that. It says that the performance of a chip will double every 18 to 24 months, while the price of that chip will be cut in half. And that has been a guiding principle, not a law. It's not a scientific law. It, was, in fact, was a marketing uh, concept that, that Intel came up with um, low 40 years or so ago. Well, what's interesting here is the analog devices CEO, big shot in the world of chips, is saying that Moore's law is dead. Yes, Moore's law is dead. Ah. He's saying that we are in a post-Moore's law world and that chip companies can actually raise prices on what they're putting out, not cut them in half and double the performance every 18 to 24 months. Interesting. Don't, fascinating. And, and, and it has long been predicted that this was going to happen. This was only a few years out. And every few years there's some massive improvement in, this, in the ability to make semiconductors that extends the life of Moore's Law over and over and over again. Um, you know, uh, I've got friends at the Wall Street Journal who've been, my friend John Markoff at the New York Times uh, spent a career writing stories saying Moore's Law isn't dead yet, Moore's Law isn't dead yet. But every three years he'd write that story. Don Clark at the Wall Street Journal, uh, my good friend, also done the same thing. Well, maybe this time, finally, Moore's Law is dead. Here's Analog Devices CEO Vincent Roche. The headline of pricing is that it is very, very resilient. And I expect that to, to persist. Um, in general, we're getting, we're passing more value to our customers, we're, we're giving more value to our customers, uh, and in fact, the, um, the core ASP of our product portfolio has been increasing, not including, incidentally, the inflationary cost that we pass to our customers. So, um, you know, I think one thing we can say for sure about our franchise is our products are very, very sticky. Our products persist for many, many decades, for example, in the, in the industrial sector. Um, and uh, we're in the post-Moore's Law era where the economic conditions have changed fundamentally. So I expect the, the pricing arena to be very steady across the industry, in, you know, in general, um, in, the, uh, in the years ahead. And, uh, you know, we will look for opportunities to pass on inflation, which is going to be persistent in the industry, I believe, in the coming years. So pricing power in semiconductors, that's what he's suggesting. Never before heard of, uh, but one to watch. Uh, uh, we'll see what happens. And I think we'll also see that in terms of, uh, um, you know, what profitability looks like across the chip industry. I find this really fascinating. So does Vincent Roach think that, um, listen, 
This is as good as chips are going to get. This is it. I don't think so. I think it's more about the, the pricing power. But yeah, I mean, it does suggest that the growth curve in the performance of chips might uh, finally slow down. Yeah. Not be twice as better every two years. All right. I mean, I find that super hard to believe, but um, well, I wish him well. Corey, what is your next drill down? Let's look at America's Car Mart. America's Car Mart trades under CRMT. CRMT have shares have dropped 6%, over 6% over the past five trading sessions and are lower by 17% in a year. What, um, what is America's Car Mart? I've never heard of this company. Well, uh, great question. Publicly traded company. Uh, you can guess what they do. Well, I'll let you guess. What do you think they do for a living, Isaac? They sell shoes. That was really not a great guess. Um, <laughs> they no, sell they semiconductors. Sell cars. <laughs> cars, yes. Guess, guess where they sell cars. Um, I, uh, not in California, I'm assuming. Not in New York. Uh, this is a this is a car a retailer focused on the southeast. Okay. And it has a, a market cap about $600 million. It's not a giant company, but an interesting one because of what they do and where they do it. Uh, the stock, as you as mentioned, uh, really got hammered uh, this week mm -hmm. um, after reporting fourth quarter earnings, fiscal fourth quarter earnings, a quarter ended in April for them. Um, and uh, they reported revenues of about uh, $388 million, up 12% from the previous year. Uh, total sales up 8% uh, over the prior year's fourth quarter. Uh, same store sales up 6%. So why, even a, a gross profit was down a little bit. So why why are the numbers down? Why is the stock down so much given that their numbers were up? And what does it tell us about the rest of the car market? Well, there are car-specific things and there are America's Car Mart-specific things. The car-specific things that they talked about uh, in reporting these earnings were interesting and maybe not a big surprise, that rising interest rates makes it more expensive for people to buy cars. And for people who are on the lower end of the economic uh, ladder, it's even harder to make car payments and borrow money because uh, those are that's the way that a lot of people buy cars and, and uh, those car payments are much, so much higher just because of, of the rapidly rising interest rates. But what these guys are also suggesting, and I think that um, in, in the case of this company, in particular America's Car Mart, really gave confusing signals. They said that uh, both people were getting out of their industry, uh, uh, focused on their individual customers, and that should create opportunities for them, and saying that there were too many people in their industry, which is taking away opportunities for them. So okay, they're fine. And 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 when it comes to acquiring cars, that there's lots of people, lots of other companies out there trying to acquire used cars to sell or resell, and that there are fewer companies out there trying to acquire used cars to resell. I think that confusing message didn't help the stock. But I'll let you listen for yourself. See if you can make sense of which way things are going here. If things are tighter, things are loose. If things are competitive or they're less competitive. Here's America's Car Mart president, Doug Campbell. So um, it's, it's tight. Uh, you know, we're all um, retailers out there fighting for the same piece of inventory. As rates have continued to go up, um, we're all out there targeting the piece of inventory. And there's a lot of people that are now encroaching in our space for vehicles that we would normally target. And so we're having to get more creative. What's been interesting is over the last uh, quarter, we had two large competitors exit the marketplace who also participated in that space. So it has sort of been like a, a release valve on the procurement side. We have seen the ease in purchasing uh, because we have less competition, right? So someone who, if you combine those two companies just slightly smaller than, smaller than us, 
like that has been sort of a godsend, especially out where uh, the territories that they occupied in the southeast part of the United States, where it's where a lot of our procurement activity goes on. So um, there's that. And then additionally, um, they serve a different type of customer with this higher price asset. It is making it easier to offload those cars as well, and it gives us an opportunity for growth there as well. So an opportunity for growth? I suppose uh, anytime you fail, there's an opportunity for growth. But I think that uh, investors listened to that and thought, wow, rising interest rates, these guys are telling a confusing story. Uh, the, this is maybe not the best market uh, to be selling used cars in the Southeast. Yeah, I feel like they're probably geographically not just not in the best area um, to sell cars. <laughs> I'm just Well, assuming. there's money to be made, but given sure. this great environment, it's tougher. Absolutely. Yeah. Corey, what's your next drill down? Let's have a happy story. Let's look at Abercrombie and Fitch where things are going well. Um, I got to admit, I, I was very surprised by this story. Uh, Abercrombie and Fitch trades under ANF, and ANF shares have jumped 22% over the past five days, literally jumping straight up if you're looking at a chart, and shares are higher by 57% in a year. We're talking about Abercrombie and Fitch. What's that? What is yeah, happening? Um, uh, uh, well, and, and it, it, certain ways of looking at the stock, it's up nearly 90% from lows of about 18 months ago. Uh, but, so they reported a first quarter sales of $836 million, whatever. But these were really strong numbers. These were the best quarterly results they've had since 2014. 3% uh, up from the previous year. Yeah. Comp sales also up 3%. If you just look at the Abercrombie stores, they own a couple of different brands, principally Abercrombie and Fitch and Hollister, the Abercrombie stuff is doing so well. It's in the midst of like a, about a three-year turnaround. And it's just so powerful what they've been doing here. Uh, last year, uh, in the same quarter, sales were up 13%. This quarter, uh, sales up 14%. So really fixing the product at Abercrombie & Fitch, getting away from t-shirts and jeans, selling more clothes for women, selling dresses. Uh, they're doing well. Now, Hollister is still holding them back. They have yet to turn around Hollister. And that's their lower, but, their lower bracket Clothing, right. is that and right? They, that used to also be uh, t-shirts and jeans and okay. more focused on kind of skaters and rockers. Okay. Um, uh, not, not as fashionable as the, I don't know, the t-shirts and jeans at Abercrombie & Fitch. Again, I'm thinking of the product that they had 10 years ago. Uh, they've started to fix some of their Hollister stuff, they think. They're still in the midst of it. They danced around the question a little bit, but they did see, when you want to talk about really hard metrics here, because it's fashion, who the hell knows? They talked about two numbers um, that are really important. So I want to talk about a concept of Chase, and I'll get to that in a second. But first of all, their prices were up. The, the average price per unit was up just a little bit at Hollister. Again, this, the results from Hollister, the smaller part of Abercrombie & Fitch, um, the Hollister stores didn't do great, but their, uh, their inventory was down and their average price per unit was up. But the low inventory allows them to do something called Chase. Chase is a concept, uh, principally in retail, where you look at what's working, you quickly make it, and you stuff the store full of it. You chase so this, the well, demand. So this is fast fashion. This, this you're describing fast fashion. This is what Zara yeah, well, I don't does. Wanna, I don't want to. Uh, yes, Zara certainly does that. I don't know how much Abercrombie and Fitch can turn new product like Zara. Uh, or H&M or other fashion, right. fast fashion. I mean, some of those fast fashion companies will, I don't know if you know this, but they will actually put fabric and sewing machines and sewers in a, in, in, inside of a container ship, not inside of a container ship, but inside of a ship. And as they're crossing uh, the Pacific, 
get the latest designs from Milan or, or copies of them sent uh, uh, over the airwaves to the ship, get the patterns down into the bulk hold, have these people rapidly sewing, and by the time they get to the port of Los Angeles, they've got finished product ready to go. That's fast fashion. Yeah. Now, I don't know if that's what Abercrombie is doing, but what they are doing is by having inventory low and l watching what consumers are buying, they can chase. They can chase the new trend. They can chase the hot product. They can chase what the consumers are suddenly showing that they want. And that ability to have low inventory and chase raises the expectations within Abercrombie and maybe with investors, you mentioned the stock surging, raises the expectation that Abercrombie can chase and fix their Hollister brand. Here are two people who know a lot about this. The CEO of Abercrombie, Fran Horowitz, followed immediately by the CFO, Scott Lipisky. Super exciting news to deliver for Abercrombie brands. I mean, to pick up to your point, you know, 14% on top of last year's 13% is really a nice indicator about how much um, the consumer is just loving our, our brand. What is driving that is a lot of exciting things. You know, it's no longer just a jeans and t-shirt business. We've been able to expand into dresses, into all sorts of occasions to satisfy this consumer from our pant business is very strong. Um, the men's business third quarter of, of positive um, comp there as well. So as you know, we started this turn with women's and now the men's business is following suit. So as far as the customer behavior goes, we're seeing them very excited about the product. And we mentioned that, um, you know, we're, we're pleased with where we're off to the start for the second quarter. On the inventory side, it is great to have the chase capability back. Our teams are literally chasing every day. Uh, the stability in the supply chain is making that easier than it has been in the past few years. Ocean shipping has been good. We can chase through ocean. And there's also a lot more air capacity out there. And the rates have come down pretty dramatically since the peak back there in 2021 and early 22. So we have the ability, our teams are using that ability, we're running the inventory lean, and as we see wins, we're able to chase them pretty quickly. So yeah, Chase, there you go. Uh, we, we'll, let, we'll keep an eye on Hollister and see what the latest, greatest trends are. I've got to talk to my teen girls and see if they are now interested in shopping at Abercrombie, a brand I haven't heard from them. But, but according to the CEO, that's another, that's a brand that's working with young women. Yeah, okay, that's my, that's my follow-up question here. Who, who is buying Abercrombie and Finch? Uh, still, still a teenager, still a, a young customer, but with with a changing interest and again more more focus on women than the brand historically has had. Mm. Maybe I saw a lot of Taylor Swift a few weeks ago. I don't know. Yeah, and it ends up in our show like this, just like this. <laughs> All right, coming up next, video games, not just for teens, not just for. Uh, guys in college dorm rooms drinking beers. Uh, the video game business is huge and no company is huger than Take-Two Interactive. A remarkable success from a company that was on the brink of, of disaster uh, 20 years ago. Strauss Zelnick took hold of that company and absolutely has turned around in one of the powerhouses, not least of which on the heels of Grand Theft Auto. Well, there hasn't been a big update in the Grand Theft Auto franchise in 10 years. The company suggested... There might be a new one on the way. We're going to put that question directly to Strauss Zelnick of Take-Two Interactive right after this. The Drill Down is brought to you by Braintrust, a global talent network that matches highly skilled technical freelancers with the world's most reputable brands. Braintrust has helped clients like Bank of America, Goldman Sachs, Porsche, Under Armour, and more build agile tech teams fast at a fraction of the cost. Visit Braintrust.com. That's B-R-A-I-N-T-R-U-S-T.com to learn more. 
All right, welcome back to the Drill Down Podcast. We're joined right now by Strauss Zelnick, the CEO of Take-Two Interactive. Strauss, great to see you um, uh, and glad to have you on the show. I say see you. Our listeners can't see you, but I can. It's nice to be here. You're catching me up in Seattle where I'm uh, lecturing on stock fraud at the University of uh, Washington Foster Business School. Um, uh, your company, I've known your company strangely longer than you because in its, in its old days of of WWE and, and uh, uh, an entirely different video game world 30 years ago. But your company has become, you know, arguably the dominant company in video games um, on the heels of some titles that have been around for a long time and others that have just really worked out to be giant franchises like Grand Theft Auto. Those big titles are, are, uh, are your, your bread and butter, yes? Yes, those and many others. And we're, we're blessed. We have 14 franchises that have each sold at least 5 million units in an individual release. So... It's, it's pretty broad-based at this point. And we also have a big mobile business, one of the biggest on earth. So what's the key to developing a franchise like that? I mean, I, I always point to games like Tetris, which tell us that a game doesn't have to be complex or expensive to be great and fun to play. But your games are great and big and expensive and fun to play. Well, I think a game to succeed needs to be easy to approach and difficult to master. But just, that's just sort of the broad rubric. I think more specifically, what distinguishes uh, our company when we're when we're doing our best work is that we seek to deliver perfection, and we try not to ship anything that doesn't measure up. And we have a, a massive creative team, some nine thousand developers in house, who are not only encouraged to pursue their passions at our companies, but but really required to pursue their passions. You know, this is not a company where you show up and people say, you know, you're going to work on this project and you're going to deliver it on this date. And then you're going to go ahead and do the same thing next year and the year after and the year after until you decide you've had enough and move on. We only recruit you if we think you're very special. And then we only want you to work on things you truly care about. And then we prize innovation, creativity, and efficiency over anything else. As you approach a potential new game, long before you can think of it as a franchise, how do you determine how big the game could be and therefore what kind of resources to put behind its development? Well, it's a great question. Uh, we, we have to make estimates based on what we know about the market and what has worked in the past. And the risk of doing that is you, you can become derivative. You know, the, I think the worst uh, reflection of that is when people describe a project as, well, it's a cross between, you know, it's a cross between civilization, a little bit of Kerbal space program thrown in, and of course, sort of a GTA twist. Um, of course. Because, because, you know, it's not going to be any of those things, number one, and it shouldn't be either. Um, so we, we want people to focus on the next big thing. And by definition, it's hard to predict what that will look like. However, we have a sense of how many units a AAA game can sell. And we want to make sure that we tailor the investment so that there's at least the possibility of a good return on investment. You know, we aim to make art, but we also live squarely within the world of commerce. Well, and those that, you, you know, you alluded to it right at the start, the the deadline for a game is greatly appreciated in the commercial side of your business, not least to say on Wall Street. And yet the pushing out of those deadlines is what can make something go from what might be a really good game to a great game or a really good franchise to a 
multi-billion dollar franchise. And we've seen the, the flip side of that, which is when we've seen competitors who had titles coming that were greatly anticipated and then they shift too soon and, and they disappointed the marketplace. Also, as entertainment businesses mature, consumer demands uh, increase and, you know, the, you know, what used to be good is now bad. You know, what used to be great is now good. You know, excellent is really hard to, to achieve. Yeah. Um, I, and I don't mean to dance around uh, Grand Theft Auto in the next release, but um, when you guys initiated your guidance uh, uh, in your most recent quarter, um, you did not announce a, a ship date for this greatly anticipated now, you know, remake of, of a, or the next version of a 10 year old game line, game that last came out was now with a significant uh, launch 10 years ago. Um, but you put a big a revenue target on the board, um, which a lot of people walked away and said, oh, that's got to be a Grand Theft Auto release coming in, in the next 18 months or so. Is there any way for you to get to those revenue numbers without a Grand Theft Auto release? You know, we, we save um, announcements for our labels to make about actual products. Uh, we have a terrific pipeline. and We didn't just guide a big number for fiscal 25. We actually guided sequential growth in fiscal 26. Uh, we have a pipeline of 52 titles coming this year and the following two years in total. And that's the biggest pipeline we've ever had. Uh, and many of those are big, immersive core titles. Uh, 44% are new intellectual properties. So the rest are iterations of existing franchises. And uh, we, we hope and believe, and I, I say the word believe because we, uh, we wouldn't have given the market the information if we didn't believe, that there is a great opportunity to meet these numbers. Because there, in, in the past, there have been sort of indications of guidance that got a lot bigger that the market took away, took away as a Grand Theft Auto release. And then that release, although it wasn't announced, seemed to come a year later. Surely that's something you'd be willing to do again if you needed to, to make the game great. You know, we specifically don't announce our release dates until we're confident that we're ready to meet the market. But equally, we don't give out numbers if we're not confident in those numbers. Um, uh, I'll, we'll leave it at that. Um, let me ask about uh, um, acquisitions and how you start to value acquisitions, uh, acquisitions, especially in an environment right now where we see uh, kind of a pullback across the world of technology in terms of hiring and everything else. I wonder if you look at aqua hires or you're looking at actually you sit down and value a potential franchise that doesn't exist yet when, when there's a game maker in the midst of making something. How do you start to look at that? Well, first of all, we have done aqua hires. We we have acquired typically very small companies because we wanted those teams on board, even when they didn't necessarily bring IP with them. That's atypical, but we have done it. In terms of bringing teams on board, um, generally speaking, we bring a creator on board, and that creator builds a team subsequently. That's that's what we did, for example, with Michael Condry at Thirty First Union. Um, we have not recruited a um, full-on team from another company ever. And um, that, that just not would be typical for us. And no, I don't think we would value a deal like that based on what a new IP that that team could create would be worth because there's just so many woulds and coulds in there. There's so much, yeah, yeah. so much uncertainty. Um, when we talk about IP, of course, in, in games, also um, sports licensing is a huge 
uh, part of IPN, no more so, I think, than your NBA 2K business. Um, what do you make of the the growth and the valuation of the teams themselves and how that relates to the, to what you're doing in, in your business? Are the, Do these things sort of have, because it seems that the, in particular in the NBA, the value of the franchises continues to skyrocket uh, for those uh, those owners uh, who are able to acquire those. And I, and I wonder if that if you're seeing there's a reason for that 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 there is a, a a commensurate growth in the revenue opportunities for ancillary businesses besides putting butts in seats well there's no doubt that the value of media rights including interactive entertainment rights uh, has gone up in the past decade and i think a lot of teams are trading uh, prices that reflect a belief that media rights will continue to increase in value in the next five or 10 years. In certain instances, for example, with football, there's long-term television license in place and you can pretty much know what the numbers are going to be. In other sports, there's an opportunity for new rights deals. Um, and for example, basketball, it'll remain to be seen whether television rights will continue to increase in value in the coming years. I'm not so sure that they will. I think there's a Pretty good chance they may, they may actually decline. Um, but there's well, nothing let's, let's, let's drill down to that. Why, why is that? Because streaming, obviously, streaming services are going to stop, are already spending much less on production than they did, and they're going to stop spending the kind of money on sports rights that they have because they just don't have the viewership to support it. Uh, so I think you're going to see meaningful reductions in production spending. We've already seen some. Uh uh, in the television business, and that will almost certainly affect upcoming rights deals. That's offset with the fact that more and more people are watching these sports, that live events are becoming more important, that international markets are being developed. Um, so I'm I'm very bullish on basketball, for example. Um, I think that, that market is still relatively small um, in, in the U.S. and outside of the U.S., and I think it can be and will be a great deal bigger, and I very much believe in the leadership. Um, but remember, the, the teams are also trading on a, a sense of rarity and desirability. Sure. These are these are jewels, you know, and they're seen as such. And for people with the the, the right size wallet, you know, this is this is a prize that they're willing to pay a whole lot of money for, without regard to the annual earnings or even the terminal value. Yeah, and there's a tax planning aspect of that as well as the ability to pass wealth down through generations with through team ownership. It's an interesting and rarely discussed thing. But I wonder if the, it, it, I guess it's not just the advertising revenue that supports the broadcast stuff, but whether it's it, the interest in the game can continue to get bigger. Can the audience for the NBA be twice the size it is right now? Unquestionably. On a worldwide really? basis. On a worldwide basis, absolutely. I mean, it, it's very underpenetrated as a sport outside of the U.S., of course. So is American football. And is that why you um, see a, a similar kind of growth trajectory for your games? They, well, sports remember, games, our games, we, we don't have 100% crossover with sports fans. So you have sports fans who play video games, you have sports fans who don't play video games. You have video game players who watch sports, you have video game players who don't watch sports. I think we could agree that the core audience for NBA 2K, like the most avid audience would be someone who loves video games and loves basketball. But equally, we have gamers who 
don't really care that much about basketball, but really care about NBA 2K. And of course, there are people who love watching basketball who don't really care about NBA 2K. So I, I think that the market can grow in all of its cohorts, in the most avid cohorts, all the way out to cohorts that are somewhat less interested in basketball but just like the game. The fact is also that the game once upon a time used to be a sim, and that was it. And today it's a lifestyle brand, and you can enjoy engaging in NBA 2K even if you don't want to play the sim game. When we look out beyond the sort of big console games, what do you see the most interesting developments in your in your industry right now? Well, I, I mean, the most interesting developments. Free-to-play remains a very big business. Um, I think the modding community is really interesting and worth pursuing. Um, I think Roblox's business model is very interesting. Yeah. And, you know, we're thrilled now to be in the mobile business, and we find that super exciting. Would, would the Roblox like, you know, a business be one that you'd be interested in or looking at something like that? I, I mean, in terms of going into the market they're in, no, they've, they've done a great job. And I think that's their market. It's not, I don't see us going to compete head to head with Roblox. Um, in terms of engaging modders in some of our titles and monetizing that business, yes, I think that's super interesting. Because it's a very different business, right? It's a very different development and getting that community involved and figuring out what the rewards for them would be is a very it's completely different uh, cup of tea, so to speak. I don't think we would do it as a standalone. I think we would do it as an adjunct to an existing business. Interesting. Sounds like you're plotting. Um, I think also the technological lift of, of what you guys do is underappreciated, not so much in the programming of the games itself, but in the real life live uh, um, aspect of watching what people are doing in the cloud, where the um, uh, what people are doing in a real time basis, and adjusting uh, your traffic to to feed those people, it's it's as a dynamic a, an industry as there is in technology. Uh, you're right, and but it's simply a matter of giving people what they want, even if they don't know that they want it. Uh, well, I wish you a lot of that, Glenn. Charles Elnick is the CEO of Take Two Interactive. Charles, thanks for your time. Really appreciate it. Great to see you, and thanks for having me. All right, coming up next on The Drill Down to Bite, the one number that tells us a whole lot. The Drill Down is brought to you by Era. With Era, give yourself an information advantage. Connect directly to earnings calls and other investor events with live transcription and event intelligence. That's Era, A-I-E-R-A dot com. And word of mouth is so important to getting other people to listen to The Drill Down Podcast. We need your help. Tell a friend. Tell somebody who might be interested in the world of business and what we can learn every week from the Drill Down Podcast. Maybe even leave a review on Apple iTunes. Let everyone know what you like about the Drill Down. And let us know what companies you think we should be drilling down on. Talk to us on Twitter and Instagram by following at Drill Down Pod and connect with us directly at our website, bizpod.net. All right, we're back with the Drill Down Bite, the one number that tells us a whole lot uh, you know, Isaac, we talked about developing new franchises and how uh, Take-Two has been so successful at that. Yeah. Uh, nothing anywhere near as big as uh, I will, uh, 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 Red Dead Redemption and uh, Grand Theft Auto are monsters even for a big company like Take-Two and uh, NBA 2K. And everything else is a little bit smaller than that. But they've been able to develop these games over and over again. Um, and the trick to that is having lots of developers. Uh, and that number went way up this year. 
uh, when we talk about how many developers are actually working for Take-Two, um, that number increased by 47%. And how many do they have? They have, and here's your drill and bite. That Here we one go. tells us a whole lot. 8,894 developers, a staff count uh, in their studios, uh, that includes the Zynga acquisition. That's 47% higher than it was just a year ago. So that's oh, wow. a huge number of developers. Yeah. Huge. Again, uh, uh, nearly 8,900 developers, 8,894 developers, uh, and a big increase from the previous year, um, particularly, you know, coming from the big Zynga acquisition. Uh -huh. But that bodes well if they can continue to manage those people as well as they've been managed in the past, that maybe there's another hit in the offing. I hope so. We could use more hits like that. They Well, they certainly could. And uh, I think you saw that stock price reaction. You know, it, it seemed like Strauss, we, he did dance a little bit around whether or not there was guaranteed going to be an announcement about uh, GTA. But because uh, in the past, they have, in fact, announced uh, 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 two years out, there's going to be a big jump in revenues and not had a GTA announcement. So we'll see if there's a Grand Theft Auto announcement uh, coming soon. But certainly uh, uh, all signs, as the Magic 8-Ball likes to say, indicate yes. All right, thanks for joining us on the Drill Down Podcast. I'm Corey Johnson. Isaac Webster is our executive producer. This uh, podcast was put together in a lovely fashion by Ben Wilson, our editor. The Drill Down is a production of the Business Podcast Network.